Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and we are diving straight into the book of Deuteronomy, chapter by chapter. We are nearing the end of the worship section in this book. We'll be talking about a new section after this chapter, so um, get along for the ride as we continue to dive into the prophets and their story and how they are to live in the land of Canaan after they have dispossessed it from the Canaanites. What are the Israelites supposed to do when a prophet has a word from God that they claim themselves and might not actually be from God? All this and more on this episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. So, uh, this chapter, uh, we're going to talk about priests and prophets. Um, interestingly, if you've been listening through to our section that we're in um, recently, through really from chapters 12 all the way to this chapter, um, you know that the section has been working through a section of what the Israelites are supposed to do in relationship to God when it comes to their worship. And this, these latter portions of the whole worship section in Deuteronomy are focused in on the leaders of um, all of the different areas around um, Israel in the land and focused on what their responsibilities are in light of all of the responsibilities that the people themselves also have in the earlier chapters. And so it's really cool because you get to see both the responsibility of what an everyday um, Israelite might have to do, and all the festivals, we talked about that. Um, but then you also get to see what um, the people that are more valued by God, um, as far as uh, having a, essentially a different role or function within the uh, community of Israel, what they get to do and what their rules are. And actually, um, a lot of the time, the rules for the leaders of Israel are far more strict and even a little bit more um, uh, restrictive than the uh, rules for the general population. And so that's going to be a fun thing to talk about um, as we dive into this. It, it'll be important to realize, too, though, that um, uh, this is kind of set up in a four-section um, uh, yeah, four, four sections within this larger section, I guess I should say. Um, we have, um, in the last chapter we talked about, um, how kings were supposed to behave and how, um, judges were supposed to behave and how they had set up kind of two different, um, systems of judgment of judges. You had the central judge, um, which we talked about as kind of probably the origins of the Sanhedrin in the first century. Um, and then you had all the smaller judges within the relative different towns. Um, and then you also had the king, right? And we talked about that last week. This week we'll be talking about, um, the Levites and the priests, and you'll see that they're, they often operate a lot like the judges do. They have kind of a dual um, uh, office, I guess I would say, where some of them are in small little towns sparsed out throughout the entirety of the land. And then um, 
Um, a big group of them are in where the temple or tabernacle will be located, where God puts his name in. And so um, it has sort of the same same relationship as the judges had in the last chapter. And, and then when we talk about prophets, um, they have a very uh, much a relationship to um, uh, Moses and how Moses acts. And we'll talk about that a little bit. And we'll also talk about what um, ends up um, uh, actually getting uh talked about in later books in the Bible as a result of these uh, laws here. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, This will be a fun episode to talk about um, for even our own personal lives, um, what it looks like um, to use prophecy um, in our everyday time period that it is, and what it looks like even to be someone that is um, a servant of God, and how being a servant of God as um, someone... um, uh, in uh, at least in First Peter, um, it talks about how all of us are called a kingdom of priests, and so how being a servant of God as a priest relates to the life that a Levite might live. Um, all of that and more um, as we dive into this chapter. The Levitical priests, indeed the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no allotment or inheritance with Israel. They shall live on the food offerings presented to the Lord, for that is their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. This is the share due the priests, from the people who sacrifice a bull or a sheep, the shoulder, the internal organs, and the meat from the head. You are to give them the first fruits of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the first wool from the shearing of your sheep. For the Lord your God has chosen them and their descendants out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the Lord's name always. If a Levite moves from one of your towns anywhere in Israel where he is living and comes in all earnestness to the place the Lord will choose, he may minister in the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who serve there in the presence of the Lord. He is to share equally in their benefits, even though he has received money from the sale of family possessions. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, one who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you will dispossess listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you, from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb. On the day of the assembly, you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words, that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, 
How can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. All right, so this first section discusses a lot of the specific laws with the Levites. For a little bit of backstory here, um, Moses is actually from the tribe of Levi. Um, so this is Moses's own family and his own clan. Um, all of the um, priests from uh, his brother Aaron are all included in this. Um, this is pretty much the entire um uh, family of Moses um, that's being talked about here. And what's interesting is they are a tribe that um, is assigned no land at all. Um, they don't get a land that will get uh, reverted back to them when the year of Jubilee happens. They um, start out with nothing. And instead, they are giving these cities that we'll actually talk about in the next chapter. Um, uh, they're given 48 cities, but the original um, few cities um uh, there's a few of them that have a very specific purpose um, that I'll leave as kind of a teaser for next week what those are. Um, but a lot of them uh, just lived in these cities and um, were oftentimes traveling from town to town um, doing whatever they needed to be done um, for the um, individual towns. And then you had a lot of them that congregated in the central town uh, sorry, in the central city um, where the temple or tabernacle of God was located, um, which is a really interesting setup when you think about it, um, especially uh, like if you were to think about like how um, we structure even our own leadership, um, a lot of the times um, it's it would be an interesting thing to say that like the your deacons, for instance, which is definitely what these Levites were. They, they, they kind of function as like the Old Testament deacons of sorts. Um, it would be interesting to have like all of your deacons necessarily not own any land, you know, um, and, you know, they can own houses and things like we'll see that they can actually sell property in this chapter and that's not a problem or anything of that nature. But, but they aren't given anything special. And the idea is that they are meant to sort of um, navigate between the poor and the rich. Um, they're supposed to be in both worlds. They're not just supposed to be um, kind of holed up in their own really rich um, lands um, where they have their own um, work to take care of. And, you know, they're not supposed to have a lot of the same accoutrements that like a normal Israelite might have. Instead, they're supposed to be dedicated to the service of the people. And um, the way that I think God sets that up is by making sure that they don't start out with any um, inheritance or allotment of land so that they can instead just um, uh, focus on what is really important for them as Levites. Um, interestingly, too, it also trains them to be relying on the people. So there's kind of this reciprocal relationship going on between the two of them. You have the Levites that will provide um, uh, different uh uh, like sacrifice, uh, sacrificial, um, services for the people. And then on top of that, you have the people that will provide food offerings for the Levites and will give them, um, not just food, but also clothing. You'll see like the best of the, uh, clothing of a sheep will go to them or the wool of a sheep, sorry, will go to them. Um, you'll see that they'll get wine. Um, I, I was reading one commentary that said uh, actually pretty much all the animals kind of had to be vetted by these priests um, to make sure that they didn't have a blemish. We talked about that um, uh, in a few 
uh, chapters ago that they couldn't give a firstborn animal that had a blemish. And so they sort of also kind of operated as sort of like the Old Testament, like butcher as sorts. Like, you know, you would give your animal and then they would uh, decide whether or not it was worthy as a gift to God. And then they would kill it and uh, have a big party with it. And so it's just an interesting uh, role that a lot of these priests had was um, a a very much a um, handling of animals in a very large way, um, as well as um, always tending burnt offerings and uh, all that. Um, It would be a very interesting job, I guess I would say, Um, uh, just like if we were able to like transport back into that time period. I I would love to sit down with a Levite and just kind of pick their brain on like what life is like for them because I don't don't know if there is a job um, that is more interesting to me than their job. uh, just with everything that they had to do and the restrictions that, that, that were put on them, um, how, how they thought about the world and how they thought about um, the people around them and did they resent the people or did they love the people? You know, like it was just to be an interesting conversations to have um, that I unfortunately don't get to have because I live way, way, way into the future past that time period. But um, yeah, they would even get like specific parts of the animal, the internal organs and the meat from the head. Um, some really interesting um, shares in specific um, that uh, they would get. Um, make sure that they get their um, uh, specific parts. Um, this is an interesting thing that uh, will get brought up again in First Samuel as well. Um, there are some uh, Levites that end up doing some uh, things that are against this law. Um, I'll leave that as well as, as a teaser. If you ever go want to go and read the book of Samuel, you'll uh, pay attention to um, um, there's a, a Levite priest named Eli, and he has two sons, and these two sons break a lot of laws when it comes to um, what they're supposed to eat and what they're not supposed to eat from the portions. So um, uh, I'll, I'll leave that as a teaser for you to go and read. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of... Uh, fascinating just um specific rules that are all meant to kind of um uh put in the mind of these levites that um all of what they have is comes from god and all of what they do is a service of god to the people um which is a really cool um mindset to have interestingly like i mentioned earlier in the podcast um one of the one of the things that uh, Peter will bring up is that um, all Christians are now a kingdom of priests. Um, And uh, he sees them as holy um, priests even. And one of the things I've found um, as a Christian working through my own personal life is that I'm often at my best when I can navigate through the world um, of as someone that's not trying to live for my own personal gain even, um, but instead um, always considering what I'm gaining as an opportunity to help others. Um, and I don't mean even just in the in kind of the sense of like, oh, any money you make should go to a charity or something like that. Uh, I, this is more of like a mental headspace that I've learned to kind of adopt, which is that money isn't the source of all happiness even um, for me. You know, the source of all happiness is my relationship with God. And so when you begin to kind of accept that as a premise statement to your life, um, that like your relationship with God is really the source of all of the the life that you need, um, you sort of then become a person that doesn't need 
things as much as you might have wanted them earlier on in your career. You know, um, you become a person that's far more um, generous even with what you do have because it's not really that that important to you anymore even. Um, and it, be, it becomes a thing in which like I've seen myself um, and um, I'm not just tooting my own horn. I've watched other people go through this process too where um, there is a sense in which uh, once your dependency on God becomes really set in stone, you almost naturally become a kind of priest to other people that don't live that way and that are still in the kind of thralls of living life as someone so dependent on money. Um, and it, it it's hard because, you know, like... Um, there are many situations that people find themselves in um, where they're forced to work all the time, you know, and I don't want to uh, ever insinuate that like a life like that is not a Christian life because I do think you can live a Christian life and that's just the situation God is giving you in. It, like I said, it's not about the life you're actually living at face value. It's about the mindset you have living that kind of life, if that makes any sense. And so while you may have a job that requires a lot of time out of you, you can still have the same mindset of a person that whatever you're working for, to put food on the table at least, um, in some sense, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> um, what matters is God and his provision. Um, and that is a hard, hard truth. I wish that there was an easier way to even say that, honestly. Um, but it really is a freeing thing and actually a beautiful thing once you've really um, accepted it. Um, but there's a, there's a hard struggle there. There's a hard struggle there. And, you know, as someone... Um, I, you know, like I still struggle with it too. So it's not even just like something that like, I figured it out and like, here's what you got to do. Three steps kind of thing. Um, but like, I, I do feel like I'm nearer to that than I ever have been. And one of the things that really has led me to that point has been, um, just having so much financial instability in my life over the last year, um, some of you may not know this, but um, at the church at Wayfarers, we uh, uh, we are a very small community. We have only like 15 to 20 members here, and uh, not all of them give. And so it is a hard thing where um, uh, we are dependent on a very few to support us. And uh, many months I've gone this whole year not knowing if the money would show up or not. And so uh, it is very much a, um, I guess I would say... Uh, it's been good for me to kind of do that because, um, I feel almost like a Levite, you know, like I, I feel like I'm living as someone that's not certain if he has land to go home to, if he is not certain if I have the finances at the end of the month to count on. And that has caused me to be more spirit minded, I guess I would say in my own walk with God and with my walk with others even, and to even be more courageous, I guess I would say more bold in what I believe and say and feel. Um, and, uh, I feel like I've, I've gotten closer at least to what God wanted these Levites to really understand about himself. Even is that like, uh, God is not a God that calls us to a life of, um, security 
every step of the way, but actually calls us to a place like we talked about this a couple episodes ago in the podcast where like they were called to a land that um, depended on rain to grow crops instead of a land like Egypt, where it just was like water that came from the Nile and watered all the ground. And you didn't actually have to worry about watering all that much because, you know, the, you know, the irrigation, um, they had all these channels figured out from the Nile and it pretty much watered all the land for them. Uh, God's like, no, I'm not going to make it that easy for you. I'm actually going to make you have to like depend on me in this land, which means you've got to follow after me with all of your heart, soul and strength. And if you do that, um, yeah, like good things will come, but you've got to have that mindset of, uh, depending on him over anything else. And that, that's really why he spends so much time in the book of Deuteronomy talking about idolatry. Like don't worship other gods, don't worship other things that you could put your hope and dependence on, um, instead put your hope in God. Um, the same is true with your own work and with your own finances and with your own, um, achievements and career aspirations. Like, you know, like you've heard all of that before, I'm sure. And I won't, I won't harp on it too much, but, um, there is a sense in which I've, I really relate to that life. Um, and honestly find it more beautiful even than the life of, just serving the God of money, if that makes sense. Uh, the God of money is a cruel God, I guess I'll say. He is a God that is all about math and numbers and uh, is about uh, whether or not things work out or don't work out is just a straight hard line in the sand, and he offers no mercy at all. Um, and uh, I just don't want to serve a God like that, honestly. So, uh, maybe that helps to understand, um, a little bit of even how the Levites might have lived and how they may have saw things again. Um, our contexts are so different, so that's just me, um, using maybe my own personal experience and, um, putting it back into their experiences a little bit. So don't take that as gospel or anything. Um, but it's just one way that that could be an application in your life, reading passages like this, a way to kind of get a wisdom point out of why these Levites were asked to live this way. And really as a call to a Christian to ask you, um, and challenge you, what ways are you living as a priest? You know, like, how are you living as a Levitical priest in the world around you? And what would that mean for you to live as a priest? Um, those are good questions to ask yourself. So after we get through that section on the Levites, um, we then have a section that talks about occult practices, which is really just a preamble section that's going to set up the section where we talk about prophets. In the Canaanite religions, uh, the way that you divined how things were going to go, how the weather was going to go, how um, your crops were going to go, all of these different things you needed to know in the future, how you divine that was through occult practices. Uh, pretty much all of the religions used some form of divination, sorcery, witchcraft, casting spells, medium spirits, you know, any of that kind of thing was par for the course of a Canaanite culture. And it was not detestable at all to them. Um, it was the way that you did things to determine the future. Um, a sort of the same way that you and I might look on the news media and uh, see how a meteorologist predicts the weather for the week um, or even listens to a podcast that predicts how things are going to go in the um, election that's coming up or, you know, all of these different things like that's our natural way of doing it is just through 
um, very experienced people that have done huge studies in science and in politics and, you know, insert whatever um, category of uh, influence and uh, interest this person might be in. Um, and we listen to them and their opinions and we hold their opinions to be valid, right? Um, this was pretty much the thing they did, except um, it was far more spiritually minded, right? There was a sense in which all of these things are far more um, divined from some other world other than the physical world. Um, and this other world is where people um, will find that truth, right? They will search um, the stars, the sky, and find truths um, in the uh, planes of existence other than our plane of existence necessarily. Although I, I will add kind of a caveat even to that, that I'm not sure even the Canaanites would have thought of it as like, you know, kind of a different realm or another world, so to speak. Like, I'm not sure they would have a spiritual versus physical um, distinction. I think they just saw it as life, you know, in the same way that a meteorologist sees the weather patterns in the um, sky as part of what predicts how things are going to go. I think they saw a lot of how they dissected a animal and opened up its liver as a way of discerning that. And so um, it's not necessarily a spirit versus um, physical kind of distinction that they would have had. However, us looking back from it today, we can definitely say that because we have that kind of distinction in our modern vocabulary. And uh, one of the interesting things is that uh, God honestly is not um, affronted by the actions of uh, um, spiritual discernment. Um, and that's something I definitely want to bring up because, like, you know, by the time we get to the New Testament, there's very much a sense in which, like, um, spiritual discernment and prophesying and <laughs> even, like, in the Old Testament, what the prophets will do oftentimes is very awkward and weird in the same way of this, this kind of thing. <laughs> there's one prophet that's told to go naked for three years. Um, there's another prophet that's told to eat cow dung. <laughs> there's, you know, there's a lot of, um, prophets of God that are told to do very weird and out of the normal kind of things. And so it's not necessarily the actions themselves. I think that, um, are what is so detestable as much as it is that, um, they are, to sources that are not real or sources that are inferior to God, um, either or, um, that is what is the problem with God. You'll notice throughout most of Deuteronomy, God is so, um, uh, like forwardly, um, affronted by any type of worship that is not worship to him. And so any type of reliance on anything other than him is very, um, offensive to him. And so a lot of that is where we get a specific section where he brings up a lot of these mediums and spirits and things is all of this was used as ways to um, ascertain truths from other deities other than God. And that is what is so detestable to him. Now you could make an argument, um, especially in verse 10, um, we have child sacrifice here. Um, that's very abhorrent to us in 2020. Um, and I think it should be. Um, but, uh, there is definitely an element. Um, I'm, I'm mainly trying to just set the stage for how they would have thought about things in their culture, at least. And I do think that like, 
Yes, I think child sacrifice as an action is abhorrent to God. I'm not saying that it's not. Um, but it is also um, a side point, I guess I would say, to the main point that he's getting at, which is um, that they're divining all of this stuff from sources that are not him, if that makes any sense. And what we'll see is after uh, this whole section here, um, he will talk about how um, he has set up a way for them to be able to know all of the things that they're trying to know on their own terms. In many ways, too, this is this is the story of the Garden Garden of Eden being repeated, right? Um, especially um, when you think about like how uh, the Garden of Eden and the fall of man always can be summed up in a simple um, kind of. Uh, outline format in which God told man to do things on his terms and then man did things on man's own terms instead of on God's terms, right? Like that, that would be the kind of easy summation of what happened in the garden of Eden and why the fall occurred. This is kind of the same thing, right? Where, um, you have all of these people that are living in the land doing divination, medium spirits, sorcery, all this kind of thing on their own terms to divine the future and they're not relying on God's terms for doing those things um, and not thinking about God's terms for doing them. And what will result is um, you'll notice even in a lot of these like um, uh, occult practices, there's this deep fascination with death in it. Um, uh, There's mediums and spirits that consult the dead, right, for the purpose of getting information. Um, And you'll find that, like, even today, people are kind of obsessed with that, obsessed with the dead and seances and, you know, all of that kind of thing. And um, what I have found has been that as a Christian, um, it's not so much the actions of a seance that I'm offended by as much as it is the obsession with death you know the obsession with the afterlife the obsession with ghosts and you know all things death you know and like part of being a christian is the concept of god having defeated death you know and that death no longer has a power over anyone um as long as you believe in christ's defeat of it and so um i think that's that's really where you know when it comes to these types of passages i wanted to nuance this a lot because um these are these are passages that sometimes get used a lot to kind of be like anti harry potter or like anti um fantasy in general um and uh as a person that loves fantasy books and loves wizards and um loves lord of the rings and those types of places i have found as i've thought through those issues and whether or not um that is something to be offended by in the fantasy books i read um i have found a lot of time it's not that these magicians are using magic that is really even the big deal to God most of the time. Um, Like it's the fact that they are using sources of power that are not God, you know? Um, And so when it comes to like a fantasy book, um, we're not really talking about that necessarily because um, usually there's no such thing as uh, a religious like mindset in a fantasy book. A fantasy book's not trying to tell you what to believe, and it's not trying to give you a theology of life. Um, It's just trying to give you 
a another world where it's possible that people behave in different ways than they behave here. Um, and because of that, um, I don't think that that same criteria necessarily applies because you're not necessarily thinking about um, whether or not um, a person is doing the right thing or the wrong thing from a Christian perspective when you read such books. Um, you're really thinking about it from the perspective of are they doing the right thing or the wrong thing from whatever um, morality is depicted in the book even um, and what is good and proper in the book. And you're kind of, I was actually reading this from C.S. Lewis re- recently where um, he talked about like really good reading of a book um, requires you to basically put everything that you believe to the side when you read a book and just let a book um, say what it has to say. Um, And that he said people that read books with a preconceived kind of notion of what is right and wrong and what is good and wrong, good and right, even when they read a book are really not getting to enjoy the book in and of itself because they're coloring every page of the book with their own preconceived notions of what they think was a good line even or what they think was a bad line and you know they're making so many judgments throughout the piece that they can't actually like enjoy it for what it truly is um and his point was that like we need to stop you know like reading a reading books as if they were things to critique for having wrong things in them and just let the books work on us and instead and see what a book will transform in you and see what it's trying to tell you. And then you can go back and then after it's had that experience with you, then you can go back and then start to kind of analyze, is this okay? Is this not, you know, um, and kind of really work that out. But, um, that first read through, um, he was very, um, uh, pointed on the idea that a good reader, he goes so far as to say there are bad readers and good readers, which I'm not sure I would go that far, but um, he said he goes so far as to say that. And he says a good reader will get himself out of the way when he reads a book and that the book itself is all that's there. And I think that could be applied um, even to um, that kind of topic um, when we talk about fantasy having sorcery and divination and those kinds of things, um, things we might um, uh, find a little problematic. Um, really thinking about why is this in here, really thinking about the wisdom behind these preventions and what's going on here. Um, uh, you know, I'll be very upfront and blunt and say I had uh, a friend of mine who was a practicing witch um, for a bit of time, um, and that was a that was an interesting experience. Uh, I told her not to do anything uh, involved with me, <laughs> um, but it was an interesting thing as far as uh, just understanding where she was coming from and how she saw life. And um, it was it was one of those things where you know you could either just like throw up your hands and say away from me, Satan, or you could be, um, like Jesus was and be someone that's understanding in some ways and try and meet them where they're at and just have firm, um, uh, I guess principles on other things, um, and make sure that, um, whatever they're doing in their life does not affect what you're doing. Um, and you do have to erect those boundaries, but at the same time, um, 
I think I think it's more upfrontry to us today because we're not exposed to it all that often. Um, whereas in their culture, they were exposed to it all the time. This would have been something that was like par for the course. And I really am serious. Like this would have been for them what would have been for us checking the weather every week. So keep that in mind as like kind of how they were supposed to live in this um, and how hard it would have been even to kind of go against that grain. So um, enough said about that. Um, The last section then focuses on what is going to be their source of the future and not just the future, but also the here and now. Prophets don't just tell you um, what is going to happen in the future. They also tell you, what is going to occur in the um, time of what's going on right now. As a matter of fact, Moses is called a prophet in this section here. Um, uh, You'll see basically um, uh, he calls himself a prophet in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Um, The idea here is that a prophet isn't just someone that tells the future, like I was saying, but is someone that also gives commands for what they're supposed to be doing. Um, It's someone that uh, hears a word from God and tells an assembly or a group of people, here's what God wants you to do right now, Um, which is a very different thing from saying something's going to happen in 20 years or something's going to happen in 100 years, right? Um, And as a matter of fact, if you read the prophetic books, a lot of the time, a lot of what they say is more akin to the first than the second. A lot of times it's more about you need to stop doing this thing and you need to start doing this thing. Um, you need to have the right heart about this thing and you need to have um, think about this more, right? It, it's not necessarily uh, a vocation in which you're constantly saying this is going to happen 400 years from now. This is going to happen 30 years from now. You know, like you will actually find very little of that in the prophets and you will find far more of them calling people out for their sin and asking them to repent or they will have a future thing happen to them. That's going to be a bad thing. You know, um, we just worked through all of Isaiah. And so if you've worked through all of those episodes in our back catalog, you know, um, that a lot of those, those passages are more concerned with Israel and their sin in the now than they are concerned with, what's going to come in the future. Um, and so that's, a, that's something to bring up here is, um, there is even sort of a move away from that kind of future discernment that even like these mediums and spiritists and people in witchcraft are so fascinated by. Right. Um, one of the things I did want to point out too, is how, um, a prophet, um, is even kind of in this weird middle ground in which, um, you're not necessarily certain if what he says comes from God or not. Um, and (laughs) I find it very interesting that in verse 21, um, the, uh, way that you figure out whether or not it was from God or not is whether or not it comes true or not. (laughs) Um, which is interesting. Um, if you think about it, because if a prophet makes a prediction about something 500 years from now, you could never figure that out because you would be dead before that became, um, uh, before it got fulfilled basically. And so a lot of times, uh, I think there is a bit of faith here that must be taken where, uh, a lot of times people that are prophets, most of the time when they claim and preach, you will find this especially true with Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the book of the 12 that 
they were never really listened to. <laughs> like they weren't ever seen as people that uh, that uh, were wise or even saying the right things. And they had other prophets that claimed different things. There's a really famous kind of prophet showdown that goes down in the book of Jeremiah between Jeremiah and Hananiah. Um, And they both prophesy from the Lord different things. Uh, Jeremiah prophesies that Babylon is going to come and wipe out um, Jerusalem. And Hananiah prophesies that in two years, uh, Babylon is actually going to give back all the articles of the temple and that we won't actually have to worry about Babylon whatsoever. Um, and they both stake their lives on their claims. Like it wasn't it's just like something that Hananiah did just to be like um, against Jeremiah. He like really believed that he had a message from God. And so it's an interesting thing um, to kind of read that passage in light of this passage, um, which talks about um uh, just w- how serious it is if they don't get it right. Um, if a prophet, like in verse 20, it says, if a prophet presumes to speak in my th- my name, anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods um, is to be put to, ne- uh, put to death. Like, you know, it's a serious offense if you are to um, claim words from God, but then they not be from God. And then having the ending of this be, well, how do you know if it's a word from God? Well, whether or not it comes true or not. Um, uh, it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating way to think about truth. I guess I would say, because a lot of the time truth for us is figured out through calculations and, um, even like, uh, like based off of a person's, uh, social credibility even like how well how much of a well-standing person they are in the community are they a kind person are they a gentle person you know um are they are these are they these attributes that that kind of influences our decision making on whether or not they're a um you know whether or not they are a person uh that we should listen to or not listen to um that's often how we decide whether or not a prophet should be listened to and, um, here it's interesting because like, um, it's not necessarily even bringing that up. They don't actually have to be kind, <laughs> um, which is an interesting, uh, point. And that will get brought up again in the new Testament. And you will find that prophets are, um, uh, talked about in acts and how they are to be kind and gentle in their prophecies. Um, but here, um, that, that emphasis is not so much. Um, and, um, I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that we are dealing with a people group that Moses will call stubborn um, and name them as stubborn. He will even assume that they are going to fail before they even get to try. (laughs) Um, And you'll see that at the end of the book. Um, And so there is a sense in which he's dealing with a, a people that committed the sins of the golden calf. And so he sees through their, um, uh, lip service, I guess I would say, and sees through to that. And so um, there's a sense in which these prophets will be harsher even than what we may see in the New Testament. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's a fascinating kind of viewpoint into how God set up truth being discerned in this time period is through the mouths of individuals that will hear his 
um, words and then communicate it to people. And he all, uh, he, he honestly sets up his reason for doing that as the fact that the people wanted it that way. They wanted that they knew that if they were talking directly to God, if they had this relationship directly with God, that God would be so holy and they would not be holy at all that like it would burn them up. Like he would be a fire that like killed them. Um, and so the prophets kind of exist in this mediator rel, uh, role where they, are able to withstand the fire in a way that the people are not and then can communicate what God has to say to the people. Um, and what's interesting about that is the new Testament, you know, just turns that all over on its head. Now every human has God within him, has the Holy spirit within him. And now there is a way in which each of us can be, um, uh, directly in communication with God and hear the word of God, um, which is just a profound concept when you think about the Old Testament and how scared they were to have that. Um, and it just shows you how clean and pure we must be now um, for God to live within us, you know? Um, and that is that is a point that I wish was preached more, is that, you know, for God to live within you, something must be very different in you than what the ancient Israelites <laughs> had um, because they knew, and God says they were right to say this, by the way, and you know, um, they knew that like if they were to talk to God directly, they would die. Um, and yet we have that freedom because of what Jesus did on the cross, um, which is just, you know, it, it's, it's so cool to see all of that kind of work out in the way it has. Um, and that has put in us a spirit of gentleness now and a spirit that can receive things in not so harsh a way as they would have had to receive things. That's the way I prefer to think about it. Um, and maybe that's helpful even for understanding some of this latter portion of the prophets. I will say um, there is still a lot here that I have yet to work out in my own life personally. Um, I still wrestle with the concept of what is it like to hear thoughts in my head that may be my own thoughts? What is it like to hear thoughts in my head that are God's thoughts? How do I discern between those two is an ongoing question in my life. Can I claim one over the other when I speak those thoughts to a person? Um, man, it's, it's, it's an ongoing thing. But even uh, if some of this uh, that we went through today is some of maybe even feels like a little bit uh, different than what is going on here. I mainly am doing that just to point out a few things that um, sometimes as far as the passage goes, um, uh, get brought up in circles and things to make sure that there is some application to them in our context, at least. Um, one of the things I've been convicted about, too, is just that um, sometimes it feels as if uh, there are a lot of people that... Um, the historical points of scripture oftentimes don't land because we've done a very poor job of applying them to circumstances in our own life. And I think there's actually a lot of rich things you can really think about here. And I'm not saying that like uh, even the stuff we were talking about with like occult practices and things, I'm not saying there aren't things to think about in our world today about that and how to meditate on those laws is really important. Um, how to think about those kinds of things. But I have found that like, I'm more concerned with a person that relies entirely on the gods of this universe, like finances and wealth and 
Um, yeah, heck, even the weather sometimes to determine their security and status and safety as opposed to relying on the Spirit of God. Um, then I am even like uh, concerned with my friends who may be dabbling in occult practices, you know. Um, both are bad, and I'm not saying um, that one isn't good and one is bad. Um, I just think that as far as problems go, um, one seems far more, um, uh, not just mischievous, but also like far more flying under the radar, <laughs> I guess I would say, than the other. Um, and that's that's why I want to, I guess, really focus my attention on that even, is um, the main point even of the occult practices and about the prophets and about the Le- Levitical uh, laws here is that um, as a people group, um, as Christians, we should be a people um, that mentally has divorced ourselves from all ways of keeping ourselves safe and prosperous other than God. Like that really is the point here is if you're a person that feels safe for any other reason, if you feel secure, if you feel like your future is set in stone and it's a good future in any sh- way, shape or form for any other reason other than the Lord, that is a very deep problem. Um, and that is something that, uh, is why God is so affronted by idolatry in this culture and why I think God would be very affronted with our culture and how we have built ourselves up, um, for the same reason, because ultimately it is a prideful choice of the fall. Like what I was talking about earlier, it's deciding to do things on our own terms instead of on God's terms. Again, thank you so much for your time, and I'll be back in your feed again next week. Bye.